All right, welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today um, we have a very, very important topic to cover. Um, if you guys um, were able to watch the previous episode just two days ago, I had um, Hank Hanegraaff on from the Christian, Christian Research Institute. Uh, he is the current president of CRI, and he is considered the Bible answer man. And of course he shook the evangelical world and the Christian world in general, I suppose, um, with his conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy. And so, um, through various events, uh, I was able to get connected with him. I, I interviewed Dr. Walter Martin's, uh, the founder of CRI, his daughter, Cindy Martin, and she was um, kind enough to connect me with uh, Hank Hanegraaff. And so one thing led to another, and we were able to have um, Hank Hanegraaff on to discuss uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, a topic that many are not very familiar with, um, myself included. Um, I am a seminarian. I do apologetics, as you guys know. But um, Eastern Orthodoxy is a topic that I haven't really um, delved into as much as maybe I should. So I, I thought that it would be a great idea, after having Hank, on explaining his view that I would have Dr. Tony Costa back on. Um, and he is a, uh, a scholar. He's reformed, uh, you know, Protestant through and through. And so, um, I want to be able to help folks get some of, uh, apologetic application from the discussion that I've had with Hank, um, and getting the perspective of someone who really knows his stuff. And so I'm looking forward to having a very in-depth, uh, discussion and analysis of my discussion with Hank with Dr. Tony Costa. So we're going to be playing um, the interview I had with Hank um, and we'll be stopping and pausing and commenting on various uh, at various places. So let me just briefly real quick introduce uh, Dr. Tony Costa uh, once again. If if you don't know who he is, we did have him on a couple of episodes before. Um, we, we had him on to defend the five solas of the Reformation. And uh, this is such an important topic. Uh, and of course, I'll um, kind of ask my first question to Tony before we get started, why this is such an important question, and then we'll just dive right in. So Dr. Tony Costa has earned his BA and his MA in the study of religion, uh, biblical studies, and philosophy from the University of Toronto. Tony received his PhD in the area of theology and New Testament studies from Rod Bowd, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, University in the Netherlands. He is a member of the Society of Biblical Literature, the Evangelical Theological Society, and the Evangelical Philosophical Society. His area of expertise is biblical and uh, systematic theology, um, the cults as well. And um, he also specializes in the area of the New Age movement, comparative world religions with a specialization uh, more specifically in Islam. Tony is also an ordained minister of the gospel. As a Christian apologist, Dr. Uh, Costa gives reasons for the valid belief in Christianity and also advocates the unique claims of Jesus Christ. He also lectures and debates at various universities and colleges on the existence of God, as well as the credibility of the Christian faith. Tony is a professor of apologetics with the Toronto Baptist Seminary, and he also teaches as, a, an, as an instructor with the School of Continuing Studies at the University of Toronto in the area of New Testament studies. He serves as an adjunct professor with Heritage College and Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario, and Providence Theological Seminary in Franklin, Tennessee, and he's lectured and ministered throughout Canada, the United States, and overseas. He's the author of Worship and the Risen Jesus in the Pauline Letters and the forthcoming book, Earliest Christian Creeds and Hymns, What the Earliest Christians Believed in Word and Song with H&E Publishing. He's also a contributor of scholarly essays in Christian origins and Greco-Roman culture and Christian origins in Hellenistic Judaism and various journals. Tony is happily married to a wonderful wife, Vida, has three children and a grandson and resides in Toronto, Canada. 
All right. Well, all of that out of the way. Uh, he is a very seasoned uh, scholar and a uh, quite a gentleman, and um, I am very excited to have him on. So let me bring uh, Dr. Tony Costa on the screen with me right now. Hello, brother. How's it going? I'm doing well, Eli. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well, and I'm super excited that you've been able to join uh, join me again and um, looking forward to talking about this topic. Yes, I'd rather be doing this and watching the presidential debates right now. So, yes. <laughs> Well, well, I just uh, while I was at work, uh, I'm a teacher, so I teach middle school and high school. Uh, the Bible class there at a Christian private school, and I have to switch between buildings. And as I was uh, switching between buildings, I received a um, a text message from a friend uh, saying that they were looking forward to this discussion more than the presidential debates. So, <laughs> I guess so, I guess uh, I guess we're trumping Trump on this one. That's right. Well, well, we'll we'll see. I think they have a a very large uh, viewership. But um, yes. Be before we start playing uh, the discussion I had with with Hank Hanegraaff, um, why don't you give us kind of a brief introduction as to why these issues of the Reformation, because this is going to be very important to this discussion. We're not just talking about Eastern Orthodoxy, but we're also coming at it from a uniquely Protestant perspective. Why, why are these topics so important for people? They're important because they they deal with the gospel. At the heart of all this is the gospel. Remember what Luther said, that it is the doctrine of justification by faith alone that is the hinge upon which the door moves. In other words, the church stands or falls on this question, how is a sinner made right with a holy God? And so the Apostle Paul made it clear in Galatians 1, 6 to 9 that the dividing line is the gospel. Uh, he was not arguing with the Judaizers over the deity of Christ because they agreed with him on that. They, he didn't argue with them on the sufficiency of Scripture because they agreed with him on that. But the one thing where they were in disagreement was the nature of the gospel. And Paul says that if you bring a gospel other than the gospel that was preached by the apostles and commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, then such a preacher or an angel, if it were to appear and deliver that gospel, would be anathema. And that word is a really strong word. It's one of the strongest words in the Greek New Testament. It literally means to be under the divine curse of God. And so what is at stake here, Eli, is the gospel. We're not debating the Trinity. We're not debating the, the creeds. We agree with the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. But where the rubber hits the road is on the question of how is a man or a woman made right with God in God's presence? Mm. Yeah, so these are very central issues. Um, and again, uh, it is it is correct to understand that the conflict during the Reformation was between um, Rome, right, and the Reformers. And so Eastern Orthodox folks tend to distance themselves because historically they were distant from that discussion. Right. But that, right. doesn't, that doesn't alleviate whether that discussion struck at the heart of the gospel. Just because That's you weren't correct. directly related doesn't mean that it's not an important question. And so I, I think that's still connected. Now, I have a first question for you before we kind of uh, start the video here. At the beginning of my discussion with Hank, um, I expressed thanks to him uh, because he was quite generous. He's a very busy guy. And so I was very happy to, to have him on. But um, he actually was okay with me just coming out at the beginning, uh, just sharing my own perspective. And, and I wanted to hear uh, maybe your thoughts on, on my opening comments with regards to Rome, Roman Catholicism, having a false gospel 
And respectfully towards Hank, I, I expressed that Eastern Orthodoxy in its rejection of sola fide, justification by faith alone, that it has a false gospel. And so I appreciated that he was able to, you know, allow me to say that without kind of being scared off of the interview or whatever. But um, would you agree with my comments there or or was I off? Do you, do you think this is a central gospel issue? Absolutely. Uh, again, the gospel is the dividing line. And I think that what you what you did there, I think was was right. It was commendable that you you told him where you stood. You set down your boundaries so that he knew where you were coming from. Of course, you and I share the conviction that the the Church of Rome and the Orthodox Church, and of course, we're going to include the Oriental churches, you know, the Coptic Church and the Syriac and Ethiopian. That didn't get covered yesterday or when you spoke to Hank. We can talk a little bit about that. But um, the, the issue here is that we consider these churches to be apostate churches with some truth in it. Uh, whereas those who take the view like Dr. Alt Martin did that the Orthodox Church is a, is a true church with some false doctrine or the Roman Catholic Church is a true church with some significant error. And if you remember, Hank told you that he believes that it has significant error. Um, I think the issue here once again is the gospel. How are we made right with God? Again, the Apostle Paul made that the issue, the burning issue in Galatians was, he uses the phrase, the truth of the gospel twice in that letter. And in that letter, he writes it with his own hands. If you remember at the end, he says, look with what large letters I write this, write my name. Right. In other words, Paul took it upon himself. He must have been really peeved at what was going on in Galatia, that he wrote the letter himself and wrote it in his own handwriting. So that was a, a very disconcerting situation there, and it involved the gospel of grace. Hmm. All right. Well, well, thank you for that. Well, let's let's jump right in. Just a quick reminder for folks: um, if you have any questions on this topic, we will uh, leave some time towards the end to um, take some questions. Of course, if you send in a, a super chat, it's greatly appreciated. Your question will uh, be asked first, um, and um, hopefully, we'll give it a sufficient time for for the questions at the end. Um, I, I was speaking with Dr. Costa before we got started, and he was like, "Well, I watched the discussion. I got over four pages of notes." Um, so uh, it, it's 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 a good thing that he uh, not he didn't just listen to it, but he really listened to it intently and and came ready to respond. And so we may hopefully, uh, you know, I'm not sure how much we'll get covered here, but we may have to break this up into a two part series. Uh, but I'm sure folks who are taking the time to uh, listen to this, they, they won't mind that at all. So um, so just a, a reminder, if you have questions, uh, you can shoot them down. So I'm going to start the discussion. I don't have fancy technology, so I, I picked a spot where I'm going to start. And then um, at any moment, uh, Dr. Costa, you can tell me to stop and we can uh, we can talk a little bit about um, sure. the comments that are made. OK. All right. Let me do this here. Thank the Lord for technology, right? Let's see here. All right. All right, folks can see that. And that's a that's a flattering, <laughs> flattering pose there. There we go. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start right now. Let's let's start this. Um, all right. Well, well, let's jump right in. Um, what I appreciated about uh, the fact that you agreed to come on was that through our contact, um, I believe it was Stephen. Um, uh, scared that's me. where I stand. I think there are some dividing lines. All that to say, um, I appreciate that. Um, what is 
Eastern Orthodoxy? Well, you know, the first thing I would say, Eli, is that if you look at church history, and a lot of people do not have any kind of working knowledge of church history, there was a time when the church was young. Uh, so there was a time when you had a tradition being passed along from our Lord to the apostles, to the apostolic fathers, to the great early church apologists, to the pre, the post-Nicene fathers, and then to every Eucharistic assembly throughout the land. And this was the one church, and that existed for the first thousand years of church history. So up until 1054, the Great Schism, as it's called, there was only one church. Uh, the, the Great Schism divided the East and the West. And then 500 years later, there was a second Great Schism. And that schism was between Rome and the Reformers, or the Reformers and Rome. Maybe we can stop it there, brother. Okay. Yeah, let, let me just say that uh, there, are some there are some presuppositions that I think Hank uh, is holding to here. And let me first start off and say that uh, I, I do appreciate Hank. I, I thank him for his honesty. I also want to add as well that I, I found uh, many of his works very helpful. Uh, I still find his work, Christianity in Crisis, to be one of the best works on an expose on the Word of Faith movement. Okay. Um, and so that book was very helpful. So I just want to state very clearly that uh, I think he's done good work, um, although I was clearly taken aback when he joined Orthodoxy. But let me just say a couple of things. There's a number of, a number of presuppositions that he makes there, and that is this idea of this tradition, this body of tradition that is being passed on from the Lord to the apostles, to the church fathers. So there's a, uh, a presupposition that he's making that there's this separate stream. There's the scriptures that are written, and then there's this unwritten tradition that has been that has been passed on orally from Christ to the apostles and then to the uh, early church fathers. Now, th there's a problem with that because th he's 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 assuming a lot here. Uh, the the church fathers clearly distinguished what they said and wrote from what Scripture says. Um, okay. The 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 fathers of the church recognized that they were fallible, and they recognized, as Second Timothy three sixteen points out that all scripture is theonostos, that all scripture is God-breathed. In fact, it's the only literature in, that is called God-breathed. It's, it's the scriptures. And Augustine affirmed that. Athanasius affirmed that. Many of the Eastern fathers, like Basil the Great, affirmed that, that the scriptures are inerrant and they're authoritative, uh, and they should be the judge on what we say and so forth. The other thing he, he also uh, is assuming is this idea of there's this one church, and he's assuming that that one church is the Orthodox Church, and right. that it, it remained static until there was this the Great Schism in 1054, where in the Orthodox interpretation of things, the West basically broke off from the East. But sure. the Roman Church will say that they, re, they rebelled against the authority of the Bishop of Rome, and they broke off. But what he's, what he's not saying is that there wasn't just the Orthodox Church. There, there was a there were the Oriental Orthodox churches like the Coptic Church in Egypt, sure. the Copts. There's the Syriac Church in Antioch. There is the um, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, and these churches are very different than the Orthodox Church. That is the Byzantine Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox, the Russian, the Ukrainian. And uh, what is very interesting about these other churches is that 
they actually broke after the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD okay. over the question of the two natures in Christ, the, the, the hypostatic union. And so the Copts and the Syriac and the Ethiopian church, the Armenian Orthodox church, these churches hold to a view that rejects Chalcedon and holds to a view called Miaphysitism, which has this idea that Christ has this, this one nature. The two natures basically become this unique uh, one nature. Uh, and so the, 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 the church, the Byzantine church and, and Roman Catholicism and Protestantism rejected that idea. And they still reject this idea. So my whole point is this, he's assuming way too much here. Uh, there are clearly different bodies or denominations we can call it that opposed the Greek Orthodox church and the Greek liturgy and so forth. Um, and, and so there was no just one church until 1054. And then there was this big split. There were other churches that rejected the authority of Constantinople. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think he assumes way too much in, in that statement. So he's presenting kind of a very surface level picture of just this, Correct. you know, this way, union, yeah. this, this unargued unanimity that yes. was broken, you know, only later on. Correct, correct. And so okay. take, for example, uh, Nestorianism. Uh, Nestorius broke with the church in, uh, in the early 5th century, and uh, he was exiled. Uh, and, and now you've got, you've got Nestorian churches as well. Uh, some of them went as far as in, away as into India and into Iran. Um, and, and then, of course, you've got the whole question of the, I know Hank brought this up, the Filioque controversy. The okay. Filioque controversy was the idea that in the Nicene Creed, it says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, but then the Western Church added, and the Son, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so uh, the, the Byzantian Church rejected that and actually called it heretical because mm -hmm. the idea is that the, 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 the creeds cannot be changed. There's, as, as Hank Riley pointed out, they oppose innovations or any changes. Um, but already in the sixth century, there's tension going on between the, the Western church and the Eastern church. So again, I, I think that, that Hank is painting this, this idea of this unanimity, as you pointed out, it, that simply does not, uh, bear true to the facts. Anyone who reads mm -hmm. Philip Schaff, the history of the church or La Tourette or any church historian will recognize that, that he really has painted a very broad picture here. Now, now, is it the case, though, that there were people very early on in the church that held to the kind of tradition and its spe specific status as being equal to scripture? Did people hold to that during that very early period? Or do you there, think that there, was? Well, there was an idea of the first person to mention apostolic tradition is Irenaeus, a bishop of Lyon in 150 AD. Around 150 AD, he talks about this apostolic tradition, but he does that in his work, I believe, uh, against heretics, heresies. Huh. And in there, he's addressing the Gnostics. And what the Gnostics were doing is they were creating these lists of, of these leaders or bishops that could be traced back to the apostles. And so because of that, this is where the, the mono-episcopacy, the, the idea of the one bishop over the, 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 the city, this arises around the middle of the second century as a reaction to the Gnostic claims that their bishops could be traced back to the apostles. Mm. And so what Irenaeus does is he first introduces this concept of apostolic tradition, but in that apostolic tradition, he says that we, we get this from the apostles that Jesus uh, was 50 years old that when he died. 
Uh, I don't know any scholar, uh, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, who holds that Jesus was 50 when he died. I don't think even Hank holds that view. But Irenaeus is saying this in the middle of the second century, and he's doing this to, to attack the Gnostics. So already in the middle of the second century, you've got this, this church father who, again, was very Orthodox in his approach. But unfortunately, he made this outlandish claim that the apostles taught that Jesus was 50 years old. And this is the first time he mentions apostolic tradition. And wasn't that based off a particular theological perspective, uh, something yes. to the effect of a recapitulation theory? Yes, yes, it was. Okay. It was. The idea was that Jesus lived every, Jesus lived uh, every part of every epoch of of the full life, and so fifty was considered right. that full life that you could achieve. So it was based on this uh, this uh, presupposition of this recapitulation that Jesus Christ was recapitulating. Uh, not just life, but he was he was recapitulating time within himself. But did they hold to this idea that tradition was on the same level with uh, with the scriptures? I don't see that at all. In fact, they clearly distinguish the scriptures from from what they're saying. Now we need to be careful because we have nothing against tradition. You and I understand that every church denomination has its traditions. The issue is when those traditions violate scripture. So in Mark 7, when, when the Pharisaic traditions violated God's word, Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites because through their man-made traditions, they were making the commandments of God null and void. Mm. So Jesus clearly opposes tradition that, that violates scripture. But in terms of tradition that doesn't violate scripture, uh, there is no issue there. Even Jesus respected uh, tr traditions that would not violate sure. scripture. We have many examples of that, yeah. Sure, and I think that's very important because it's often in popular conversation, you have presented this false dichotomy. It's scripture or tradition. You right. Protestants throw out the other, and that's that's not the case. Right. I think that's important to point out. All right, well, right. let's let's con let's continue on. Sure. And uh, once again, you just let me know when, when something sure. pops out, or if something pops out to me, I'll, I'll stop it. Sure. ...that took place in the church, but prior to those schisms, the church was young. Mm -hmm. The church held uh, to the dogmas of the seven ecumenical councils. And that's why oftentimes I say Eastern Orthodoxy is the church of the seven ecumenical councils. Okay, they we can stop there. To it. They don't stop. Okay. Yeah, he mentioned when the church was young. And, and, and he does use the analogy of you know that uh, that friend of his in India and that river, how he could see the bottom, and he want and he talks about how you want to get to the part where you could see through the the water and you could see the bottom of the river, and, and he wants to go to when the church is young. But but what I was surprised to find is that we know what the church like looked like when it was young, and the, and we know where to find the church when it is young, sure. and it's not in the seven ecumenical councils; it's right. in the New Testament. And so Amen. when we go back to the first century, which is where the church was young, not in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth century, but if we go back to the first century and we go into the New Testament church, what we find is the affirmation of scriptural authority. We find the, uh, the position of, of elders and deacons in the church. Uh, we don't find these, these Marian dogmas taught by Paul or John or James or Peter. Uh, I mean, imagine in your mind that when Paul was writing to these churches or when he was establishing uh, churches where he preached, that Paul was walking around in priestly vestments with a turban on his head, and there were icons inside these buildings. That's sure. not what we're talking about. And so if you really want to see what the church was like when she was young, you got the book of Acts. The book of Acts shows us what the church looked like when she was young. And we know what the church looked like. It was, a, it was an evangelistic movement. 
it had Jesus Christ as the head of the church, the, the foundation of the church, and it had the, 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 the faith once for all delivered to the saints in their possession and so forth. Uh, and, and when he talks about how the Protestant Reformation kind of muddied the waters, well, I think the waters were already getting muddied in the second century with the Gnostics mm -hmm. and with other heretics. And so, and so the idea here is once again, that he's making this, this presupposition that the Orthodox Church is the church when it was young. Well, that's a bandwagon argument because the Roman Catholic Church says the same thing about itself. No, 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 that was us. The, the Roman Catholic Church was still young in those days. And the Ethiopian <laughs> and the Protestant, Church. The Protestants yeah. are like, why don't we just go back to like the earliest documents that we have? <laughs> yeah, the exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so when you look at the New Testament and you look at the New Testament documents and, and you compare them to Orthodox uh, theology today, or you look at the Orthodox liturgy, uh, or you look at uh, their veneration of icons or, pray or prayers and invocations to Mary, those things are absolutely absent in the New Testament. And, and this whole issue of justification is just swept over. They just go from this idea of creation all the way to theosis. Uh, and, and he talked about how the West is, was more based on this judicial aspect of God's law. Well, God's law is judicial by definition. Sure. And, and if you look at the Old Testament and you read Romans 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, there is no way you can get around the fact that Paul uses forensic terminology like justification. That's a, a forensic term in the Greek New Testament. So uh, if, if I want to see what the church is like, then what did the reformers say? The reformers didn't say, let's get back to Augustine. Let's get back to uh, Justin Martyr. Let's get, they said, ad fontes, back to the scriptures, back to the fountains. In other words, the Reformation was saying, let's go back to these sources from whence we came and let us look at how the church was established and how the church was organized. And it sure doesn't look like what we see in the Orthodox and Roman Catholic Church. Right. And I think that's an important thing. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. I have nothing against kind of the, some of the complexity that worship and liturgy has taken. Sure. shape just in general I, I don't see anything wrong sure. with that just in principle but there's just a simplicity to the new testament yes. that a lot of these later traditions kind of just add all this unnecessary intricacies that you go back to scripture and it's like where is all of this um yes and and why is it com almost completely absent now, you think that there might be allusions to some of these very important things that the church seems to say is as tradition, but not in scripture. So I think that's very, very important. It's not so much an argument from silence, but the silence no. is deafening with regards very to- much so. with a, Very with much so. Very much so. And that's why they appeal to tradition. They know they need mm -hmm. tradition sure. because they know they're not going to get it in the scripture. And so they have to supplement it with tradition. But in order mm -hmm. to do that, they need to claim that tradition is equal to scripture. So there's an implicit denial of sola scriptura. Right, right. Um, let's continue on. Thank you for those thoughts. Subtract anything from it. And I think what's also very important to recognize about Eastern Orthodoxy is it's not innovative. It's seeking to perpetuate the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So again, it's not seeking to be innovative, but perpetuate the faith. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a very important point because there was a time in which the stream was unpolluted. 
Uh, a friend of mine oftentimes tells the story about when he was a boy in India, he used to climb a bamboo tree and jump into the clear water of a river, being able to see the bottom of that river. He says he now goes back to that same place and he can't see the bottom of the river because it's polluted. But if you take a canoe or a kayak and you go to the headwaters or the origin of that river, the waters are still unpolluted. And that's... Can we stop, stop right there? Yeah, yeah I, I wanted to ask a question. I want to ask a question. When he says the waters were unpolluted, there's a time where the waters were unpolluted. I'm just thinking, weren't the waters polluted from the very beginning? And so you needed a standard to differentiate the pollution exactly. and the, the purity, right? I mean, that's right, kind of right. Yeah, but when the waters were unpolluted, we could honestly say this was when the Lord ministered in the world and establishing his church and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you get the Judaizers coming in and then the Gnostics are coming in and so forth. But what about 1 Corinthians 1, where the Apostle Paul is dealing with these schisms in the church? And he's got people saying, I follow Apollo. I follow uh, Paul. I follow Peter. And then there's these super Christians. We follow Christ. And Paul right. says, look, is Christ divided? Were you, were you, would the, did Peter die for you? Were you baptized in my name? And so forth. In other words, already from the get-go, you've got these, these schismatic uh, people in the church in Corinth. And then they're, they're drunk at the Lord's Supper. They come to the Lord's Supper and they're over drinking and so forth. Uh, you've already got a church in trouble. And that's because the church is made up of broken people. But again, the presumption that Hank is making is that the water was clear when you had this uh, Orthodox church in place. And then mm. what muddled it was uh, the Roman Catholic Church and then the Protestant Reformation. By that time, you couldn't even see clearly in, into the, through the water. And so there is, there's clearly a, uh, an anti-Protestant bias here, uh, mm -hmm. the undercurrent, no pun intended. There's a, an, un an undercurrent of anti-Protestantism here. But if you really want to get back to when the source was clear, that's the New Testament. Mm. All right. Thank you. In my estimation, is a good depiction of what Eastern Orthodoxy is. I mean, from the time of the Reformation, there has been tremendous pollution of the Christian stream. I mean, okay, we can stop there. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> see, this, this, I mean, I love Hank, and, and, and we should continue to pray for him and pray for his health as well. But this sounds more like the Orthodox answer man, not the Bible answer man. Yes. And I think Dr. Martin may have been quite shocked to find someone in the Orthodox tradition leading his ministry. Uh, even though he thought there were a true church with some error in it. Uh, but then again, if you notice uh, with the Reformation, this is the time and it really got muddled. But yet the model of the Reformation was uh, post-Tenebrous looks. After darkness, light. Not darkness, not pollution, but light. And so the fact that people could read the Word of God in their own language and, and that there was revival and Reformation that not only affected Germany, but think of what happened in Switzerland and then in England with John Knox and then later with William Tyndale and then of course uh, the, the Puritans coming to America. Uh, all of that is a fruit of the Reformation uh, which has built the West really. When you think about the, the, the West was built on this idea of Reformation and freedom of, of religion, freedom of speech and so forth. So yeah. All right, good, good point there. It happened with respect to Zwingli and Luther. 
Luther believed in the real presence of Christ. Zwingli believed that Luther's belief in the real presence of Christ constituted bread worship. So what happened? They had a debate, a very famed debate. And Zwingli asked Luther how Christ could be really present in the Eucharist, in the Thanksgiving meal. He said, how's that possible? And Luther's response was telling, he said, if you can tell me how Christ can be one person with two natures, I'll tell you how Christ can really be present in the Eucharist. In other words, Luther was saying what the Eastern Orthodox Church has always said, this is a mystery. To use a Latin phrase, it's the mysterium tremendum et fiscinans. It's the mystery that causes we us can to tremble. Pause there. Yet... Okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So again, there's there's a lot of presupposition going on here. The whole debate with Zwingli and Luther in in, in Marburg, uh, the whole issue that they agreed on all these points on the Reformation, but where they differed was, of course, on the Lord's Supper. And what Hank is assuming here is that this has always been the view of the Church, that the Church has always held to this idea of the real presence in the Eucharist, the transubstantiation idea in the Roman Catholic Church. So here's the problem. The, the, the idea of real presence and the idea of the Eucharist uh, are not the same thing. And at least in the early periods of the church, they were not seen as the same thing. It later developed into, they merged the two concepts together, right? And so in the West, you ended up with transubstantiation, which was thanks to, well, the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 defined transubstantiation. And then Thomas Aquinas uh, worked it up with Aristotelian categories. And so Aquinas, who, who was an Aristotelian uh, theologian as well, scholar, philosopher, he used the whole concept of form and substance and substance and matter and accidents. And, and through Aristotelian logic, he tried to explain transubstantiation. So, so he depends on Greek philosophy to explain this novel idea called transubstantiation. But if you read Augustine, read Augustine's commentary on John, on John 6, where Jesus speaks about himself as the bread of life, etc. He clearly shows us that Jesus is not talking about literal flesh and blood that we're eating. He clearly says that this is spiritual food. We are eating spiritual food, and that's Christ himself. He offers himself, and he uses the analogy of bread and uh, bread and, and, and of blood and, and flesh and so forth. But clearly, he says it's a spiritual presence that he's talking mm -hmm. about. And so, and so this, can, this, this, this merger that we're talking about is something that, that took centuries to develop. And, and so Zwingli understood this. Zwingli was not some, some airhead type of reformer. He, he, he did his history. He studied history. Uh, sure. Luther, on the other hand, Luther was one of those, I, I usually use the phrase that Luther had these Roman Klingons, like he had difficulty having this, he still held to, to, to these Roman ideas, like the mass, uh, he, sure. he, you know, infant baptism, of course, all the magisterial reformers were Pedro Baptist. But the point here is that it's not as, cut you know it's not this clean cut that hank makes it out to be calvin would disagree with zwingli as well and calvin would say sure. no it's a spiritual presence whereas zwingli would say no the supper is completely memorial and luther mm -hmm. held to the view that well some has come to be known as consubstantiation uh, and but, so right. yeah but but i think it's also important too if we are to follow uh luther who held to sola scriptura right right Calvin, right. who held to Sola Scriptura, 
and Zwingli, right. who held to sola scriptura, regardless right. of the disagreement, to follow the reformed principle would require us to say, well, let's check it with scripture. So exactly. it's it's irrelevant as to whether, you know, what did Luther believe? What did Calvin believe? You know, some people right. often bring up, well, you guys, you know, trust Luther. He argued that the book of James didn't belong in the, it's like, well, who cares? We tested against scripture. You see, so I think there's often appeals to these things and they don't, people don't remember, uh, they forget right. rather that it's the principle of scripture. We test Correct. even them against Correct. the, against the word of God. Correct. Thank God we're not, uh, I mean, even Luther at the end of his life, uh, went completely anti-Semitic in his diatribe against the Jews. Sure. Uh, and, and of course, you know, Calvin was not responsible that people accuse him of, he's responsible for the burning of Michael Servetus. Actually, he wasn't. He actually had no say in the matter other than pleading Servetus to recant. He didn't want to see him burned to death and so forth. But uh, once again, uh, these were not infallible men. Did God use these crooked sticks to make straight lines? Yeah, he did. Sure. And out of Luther and Calvin and, and, and Knox and, and, and even uh, Wycliffe and Huss and, and Tyndale, God has, has reformed his church. He's brought light out of darkness and so forth. So I, I think once again... Um, I think in the words of Shakespeare that Hank protesteth too much on this <laughs> All right. Very good. It's a good transition. Let's continue. Yet Atraxas. So the church did not innovate early on, but from the time of Zwingli on, there was all kinds of innovations. The stream kept getting more and more polluted. So I like to think of Eastern Orthodoxy as when the church was young. Mm. And this is what Eastern Orthodoxy seeks to perpetuate uh, in the present uh, without any innovation. Okay. Now, uh, there are a couple of things there that I, I guess would pique the interest of some Protestant folks and just people who are interested in church history. And what I appreciated, I don't remember the, the talk you had, but uh, uh, there was a, a talk you had, I watched it on YouTube, where you admitted that... Um, uh, the knowledge of church history prior to the Reformation is something that we all have difficulty. I mean, a lot of us remember back to the Reformation, and some have even jokingly said, you know, modern evangelicals, they only go far as back as, uh, you know, Billy Graham. You know, we're not very much in touch with um, church history prior to the, to the Reformation. But there is, um, there is great debate, um, especially with regards to what constitutes uh, a tradition that has a genuine apostolic connection. So you have the different divergent views between uh, the Orthodox view and the Roman Catholic view. And then, of course, the Protestant view, which which says, um, uh, well, let's go back to Scripture. And then you have that sola scriptura issue. So why don't you speak to that? And, and you can maybe correct me if I've said something that, that was off. Um, well, what's up with this tradition? I mean, you said that there's an unpolluted tradition within the Eastern Orthodox perspective. But then me being naive of the details of church history, which is something I, I want to look into, I see uh, in the Western church, <laughs> I see, I activated Siri when I said that, um, I see the West, <laughs> I see the Western church um, that promotes a papal infallibility and all these things that they try to argue that it's part, part of the purity of apostolic tradition. And then you have the Eastern church, which says, well, no, we're we're preserving that. What's going on there? How do you differentiate between the two uh, from your perspective? Well, the first thing that I would say, Eli, with all due respect, is that sure. the reformers in Rome have more in common than Rome does with, with orthodoxy. 
Sure. Uh, th there are many huge differences between Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. So the the idea that Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism uh, see eye to eye on substantial issues, I think, is um, is, is simply uh, not factual. The other thing we can stop there, with, Eli. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say once again, because uh, I've dealt with Roman Catholic apologists, I've debated Roman Catholic apologists. And everything Hank says, um, it sounds like they read the same uh, textbook. It's okay. like they went to the same the same school because everything he's just said is everything Roman Catholic apologists tell me. We go okay. right back to to Peter. Peter was the first pope that Jesus Christ established, and mm -hmm. um, the early church held to the Immaculate Conception, the Assumption of Mary. They held to Purgatory. They held to all of these things, and so. I'm still, I mean, in the interview, I was shocked to find out that that Hank really didn't back up anything he said. He just assumed this. He just put it out there uh, without any evidence whatsoever. He just assumed that this is the church of antiquity, the Orthodox church. And there is a fallacy in logic, Eli. There's a fallacy called the appeal to age. And this idea is that if 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 an idea is old, then it must necessarily be true. And And, and again, sure. that's not true. Uh, it's been shown. I mean, we used to hold to a geocentric model at one time until that was shown to be false by Copernicus. Um, but this this idea that when people say to me, don't you know that the Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic Church uh, is the oldest church and we could trace it right back to the very beginning? And, and Gnosticism is a very old uh, movement. It, it started in a very early period in the church's history, but that doesn't logically follow that therefore Gnosticism is true. Sure. We need to be careful about this. And so the the idea then, uh, Frankie, Frankie Schaefer, the son of the great reformed um, scholar, uh, Dr. Francis Schaefer, a, a very great uh, mind of the church, uh, his son uh, left uh, the reformed uh, tradition and went into Eastern Orthodoxy as well, and then eventually left and, and became an atheist. Uh, and so this idea that, oh, I want to go to the church that that is the oldest church, you're presuming that just because an institution is very old, it must necessarily be true. That's that's not necessarily the case. So you're right, Eli. We need a standard by which we could judge all else. That's why we have a Supreme Court. The Supreme Court makes the final judgment on all issues. Sure. The Bible is our Supreme Court, and we need it to establish truth. Sure. And, and I know you're not meaning to say this because I do think, uh, what I'm about to say, I do think Eastern Orthodox people who know what they believe and why wouldn't simply argue that because it's the oldest, it's true. But part of their argumentation is that it is the oldest. And yes. so that's kind of evidence towards it. So Correct. I understand that I don't want anyone to claim that there's a straw man going on here. There's right. more to the argumentation that they use. Absolutely. But, but that's usually touted as kind of a, a main part of the argument. Look how, look how far back it goes. And so I think that's those right. are some good comments on your part there. All right, let's continue. With respect to your question on tradition, is that if you look at Scripture, Scripture tells us that the church is the ground and the pillar of truth. It is the church that gave us sacred Scripture. I mean, if you look at the early church, there was no New Testament canon. 
Okay, we can stop the there. Time of the okay. <laughs> you saw my okay. eyes when yeah, he said that. My yeah. eyes are like, wait yeah, a second. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. Well, the first thing is the, the famous text, First Timothy three fifteen, that is is usually uh, quoted, uh, and the way it's quoted, uh, it assumes that there's this this there's this centralized church, and mm -hmm. this centralized church is the pillar, and it's the ground of all truth. When in fact, many. Pauline commentators, if you read commentaries on first on the pastoral epistles, many commentators will point out that Paul is actually thinking of the local church here. He's addressing mm -hmm. the local church. Every local church is a pillar and ground. And mm -hmm. so when we look at this definition of the church, which is the pillar and ground of the truth, it's important to understand the language Paul's using there. What is What does he mean by a pillar and ground? Well, pillar and ground is the necessary requirements in order to hold something up. You obviously need a pillar to hold up your roof, and for obviously the pillar has to rest on the ground. And so the idea here is that the church, the function of the church is to uphold truth. We uphold the truth of God's word and we are the salt of the world. We are the light of the world. And so the idea here of the church being the ground and pillar is that the church fulfills a function in the world. And the function is to uphold God's truth. That's what pillars do. They hold something up. But the way that he is interpreting that is that well, the church is this very ground, but yet what does Paul say in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 3, he says, look, no one can lay a foundation that's already been laid. And, and, and that foundation is Christ Jesus and the prophets and the apostles. Christ is the cornerstone. And then you've got the apostles and the prophets. And the church is built on that foundation because obviously you need a foundation before you put a, 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 a flooring down and, and you put pillars up. In other words, we rest on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. But notice what he says next. If it was not for the church, you would know the canon. The canon is the product of the church. Now that is a radical departure from the Reformation. Radical, because what it's basically saying is, it is the church that created the canon that we use today. And so what he's trying to say is that we are indebted to the church for if it was not for the church, we wouldn't know the canon of scripture. And this is a major, major problem here because what they end up with is an infallible, uh, basically you have a, a list of infallible books that the church creates. Whereas we believe that we have these this collection of this infallible collection of infallible books that God has sovereignly moved his church to listen to the voice of the master. And that's what the church father said, by the way, they said the same thing. So uh, I'm sure we'll hear more on this, but uh, this is a very common Roman Catholic claim as well. Yeah, sure. Festal letter of Athanasius the Great in 367. Mm -hmm. uh, and even then, that was just the start of codifying the New Testament canon. So for many years, the letters that were circulated in the church were very different than the canon that we have today. And by the way, and this is a bit of a tangent, this is a problem that Protestants have. If you uh, look at any Protestant Bible or virtually any Protestant Bible, uh, you have the Masoretic text in the Old Testament, and you have the Septuagint being quoted in the New Testament. So, for example, if you look at the Jerusalem Council, uh, Amos chapter 9 is quoted. Well, if you look at the Septuagint, 
it coheres with the quotation in the New Testament. But if you look at the Palestinian text, it does not. And there are many examples like that. So it is the church that preserved sacred tradition, the epitome of which is the Bible, which I love. I've spent most of my uh, ministry and most of my adult life uh, mining the Scripture, memorizing the Scripture, meditating on the Scripture. So I have a high view of Scripture, but I think it's important to recognize that it is the church that gave us the Scriptures. Okay, if we can just stop okay, there. Okay, so, I mean, coming from a Protestant perspective, okay? Yeah, uh, he, he just flew right by the, the whole idea of the Masoretic text there in the Septuagint. Okay. Um, so maybe for our hearers, we can we can define what we, what we mean by these terms. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was written starting around 250 BC. And when he referred to the Palestinian Bible, that's the Hebrew text. This is known as the Masoretic text. But but what is interesting is that um, is that Hank doesn't mention the fact that that Matthew quotes from parts of the Masoretic text that we know today is the Masoretic text, and Paul in First Timothy even quotes from uh, what we know today is the Masoretic text. Majority of quotations are from the Septuagint because many of the churches that were uh, being uh, planted were Greek speaking. It was the lingua franca of the world, and so of course the Septuagint would be the preferable translation. But remember, folks, the Masoretic text is still God's word. The Hebrew text of the Old Testament is still God's word. You see that the Greek Orthodox Church and, and many Orthodox churches don't use the Masoretic text in their Old Testament. Their Old Testament is translated from the Septuagint. What Jerome did, and this is important, what Jerome did was Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin, the Vulgate, what Jerome did was revolutionary. Jerome said, look, Romans 3.2 says that God gave his oracles to the Jews. If, if the Jews don't know their Old Testament, nobody knows. And so what did Jerome do? He studied Hebrew. He went to Israel. to, to uh, He was trained by rabbis. The only complaint he had about the rabbis was that they charged him too much. But he went to study Hebrew uh, in Israel, and uh, he translated the Old Testament into Latin from the Hebrew, and he also rejected the Apocrypha. Why? Because he right. didn't find the Apocrypha in the Hebrew Bible. That is the Bible that is used today by uh, Protestant Bibles are based on the Masoretic text, as is the Roman Catholic uh, Bible today uh, is is derived from the Masoretic text as well. So he, he again, he makes these really broad statements. The Masoretic text, the Septuagint uh, were part of God's word. And then later we have the Targums, the Aramaic uh, paraphrases. So um, so he, he could have been a lot more clear there. But the implication is that the Septuagint, the Greek translation, is the preferred Old Testament of the church. That's not the way the early church looked at it. Okay. All right. Thank you. In perspective. Um, I mean, I that's guess, no small point. Uh, well, of course. Yeah. And I mean, this is going to be, uh, I mean, this is a very big difference in point of, of discussion with the issue of, uh, you know, how we got the canon of scripture. I mean, wouldn't you say, though, that the canon was completed the very moment the uh, person wrote the particular book. I mean, isn't it the case, wouldn't you say, that the church recognizes the canon, not so much gives us the canon? Well, and the church actually gave us the canon. Um, I mean, there were, there were books that were used in the church uh, that were bound together. Uh, Clement was bound together with Corinthians in the early church. These were letters that were circulated 
in church. It was the church that gave us ultimately, uh, that codified the canon and gave us the canon. But okay, we could stop there. Collecting it under. Yeah. Okay. Well, he says the church gave us the canon. Um, so in the Old Testament, um, how would a Jew know that First Samuel was canonical? How would a Jew know that Isaiah was canonical? There was no church. You had uh, the people of Israel, and they were under a monarchy, the Davidic monarchy. They had a priesthood. But nowhere are we told that the priesthood got together and they established the canon of sure. the Old Testament. In other words, these scriptures were, were already accepted. They were, they were presumed to be from God. And so um, the question of the Old Testament canon is an important question. How would a Jew living before Christ know that 1 Samuel was canonical? There was no church to tell them that. Um, and, and therefore, when you come into the question of the Old Testament, um, the, the, the Old Testament canon of the Orthodox Church differs from the Roman Catholic Apocrypha as well. They have additional books. And then when you go to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, my goodness, they've got Jubilees, they've got the Book of Enoch, they've got, uh, uh, they've got these, they have 81 books in their canon. And they claim they're the true church. They claim that they go back to the original uh, apostles. So again, uh, there's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of assumptions that Hank is making here, and he's not taking into account the the the, the different arguments that were being that were being had among these various Jerome debated uh, Augustine on the Apocrypha, and yet Augustine didn't know Hebrew. He had no idea of the language, very little lang uh, knowledge of Greek. Well, so, uh, yeah. Dr. Costa, I, I have a question then. So how do Eastern Orthodox, with their claims of tradition and apostolic succession, and the claims of Rome with their tradition and their claims to apostolic succession, how do they differentiate between each other? Is it just a they're throwing claims at each other? I mean, how do they break that, quote, tie? It's not as though you can go back yeah. into the early church and just neutrally and objectively look at the evidence. I mean, they're going to be looking at those documents with their set of presuppositions and their lens yeah, through which they're... Of course. They're, so how does that work between the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox? How do they work those yeah. things out? Yeah, it's 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 the race. It's basically a race to uh, the claim that they are the oldest church. So their mm -hmm. claim to primitive, their claim to being the primitive church is, is what they use on each other. That the Orthodox say, we go way back before you guys left us in 1054. And the Roman church will say, no, 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 you you divorced us. You're the one who left me. And so they get into this like the spousal dispute about who left who. Uh, and so again, it's all based on empty claims and they're all anachronistic fallacies when you think about it, uh, because they're assuming that everyone was Orthodox and that Roman church assumes everyone was Roman Catholic. And there are some, you know, in, in our friend James White always says incorrectly so, that we need to let the church fathers be the church fathers. Don't make sure. them Presbyterians. Don't make them Reformed Baptists <laughs> or Roman Catholics. They are they were who they were, uh, warts and all. Um, and so that's how they make this claim: is that they they claim they have a stake at antiquity here. Uh, and, and you mentioned a good point too. You brought up the issue of apostolic succession. Um, again, where do we have this in the New Testament? When you get to the pastoral epistles. The Apostle Paul doesn't say that the office in the church is that of an apostle, a priest, and then, you know, you've got the Pope, the, the archbishops, and the cardinals, and he says there's two offices in the church. There's the elders and there's the deacons. 
and he doesn't mention anything about uh, the office of apostle continuing. You would you expect to find it in the pastorals, but it's not there. All sure. we find is elders and deacons are to lead the church. So when someone says, "Well, we're we're descended from this apostle, we're descended from that apostle," you and I have apostolic succession. Um, um, uh, Eli, right here, Th this here is apostolic succession. The words of the apostles are contained herein. If I want to hear what Peter said, it's right here. What John said, what Mark said, what James said. Uh, I don't need uh, Pope Frankie to tell me what Peter said. I can see it in here. The voice of the apostles are still here. This is apostolic succession. So um, they need to make these claims because at the end of the day, they have this thing called tradition and they can't live without it. So mm. the Orthodox Church, the Roman Church, they have their own sola. I don't know if you've heard this before, Eli, but okay. while we have the five solas, they hold to sola ecclesia, church alone. The church determines the canon. Now, the can I church say that? determines can, all these things. Can, yeah. Can I interject? So yeah. um, just to, cl to clarify, Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism wouldn't claim that they hold to sola ecclesia. Are you saying that sola ecclesia is an implication of their perspective? Yeah, they won't say the word. So, yeah, they won't say the word sola ecclesia. But in practicality, when you see the outworking of their argumentation and the yes. outworking of their theological underpinnings, it is clearly sola ecclesia. You just heard it. Without the right. church, we would not know the canon. The right. church gave us the canon. So at the end of the day, the ultimate authority, if the church determines the canon, then that presumes that there is an authority beyond and above the scriptures. The scriptures are subject to the judgments of men to declare them inspired, whereas the Protestant view is that it's God who defines his word as inspired because they proceed from his mouth. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the, the implication is definitely sola ecclesia, because at the end of the day, I've heard this from Mormons. The Mormon church will say, we have the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, and we have a living prophet who tells us how we should be led by God and so forth. That is the same mantra that we keep hearing. At the end of the day, it's not sola scriptura. And, and, and Hank doesn't believe in sola scriptura. It is sola ecclesia at the end of the day. Sure, sure. All right, let's keep going. Uh, just real quick for folks, um, again, if you have any questions, uh, towards the end, we'll be taking some questions. It may look like we'll be breaking this up in two parts, yeah. uh, which I'm sure uh, Dr. Costa wouldn't mind. Uh, oh. uh, and um, but if you have any questions, please send them in. And um, in uh, I haven't decided how much time, but maybe not too much time. We'll kind of uh, listen to a couple more minutes, make some comments, and then take some questions. Um, and uh, we'll take it from there. Okay. All right. One, uh, you know, kind of cover, or I mean, no, surely ascertaining we... that these are the canonical books. Uh, and 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 I mentioned earlier what I thought was a tangent, uh, maybe a tangent, but probably isn't because uh, there's also a whole discussion as to uh, whether there's a longer canon in the Old Testament or whether that longer canon doesn't belong in, in the Old Testament. So there are a lot of issues that have to be parsed out there as well. But it was the church that determined uh, the canon. Uh, there were many other books that could have been added to the canon, and they're very edifying to read. I mean, if you look at the Didache, for example, the Didache is edifying, it's instructional, it's important, but it's not included in the canon. 
uh, Clement's epistle is not included in the canon. So there was I just a determination made. Sure. Well, again, he talks about these longer uh, lists of the canon. But again, if the church determines the canon, then, then why is it that the, the Greek, the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church includes um, uh, books like Psalm 151. You See, we all thought the Psalms ended at 150. There's 150 Psalms. Well, in the Orthodox canon, the Old Testament, in their, uh, their canon, they have Psalm 151. They have the prayer of Manasseh. They have the Psalms of Solomon. They have third and fourth Maccabees. All of these books are rejected by the Roman canon. Rome declares these books apocryphal. So mm -hmm. now you've got the Western church saying that the books, some of the books in the Orthodox canon are apocryphal. The Orthodox church is saying, no, no, no. So which church is right here? And then the Ethiopian church says, well, we go back to uh, Matthew came and established the church in Ethiopia. And the, the Ethiopian eunuch came back and gave the gospel to the Ethiopians. Um, and we have 81 books in our canon. So which one is right here? Remember, as, as Hank said, it's the church that determines the canon. Which church? Because we seem to have a lot of confusion. Now, the, see, the Protestants are, are pretty simple about this. We go with the Jews. The Jews knew their books. They knew their Bibles. Uh, and a great book on this topic, if I can, um, Eli, sure. this is a great book. The Old Testament uh, canon in the New Testament church by Roger Beckwith. This is an, a wonderful book. It's published by Wiffenstock. And this book is, is really deals with this whole question about the canon and how the early New Testament church held to the canon that the Jews held to. Uh, and so this is a really good book on the topic. I would suggest you or your readers or your viewers rather uh, look into that. So again, um, Hank is, is, I'm not saying he's being elusive, but what I'm saying is this issue is a lot more complicated than he makes it out to be. Um, so, so there is no unanimity here when it comes to the canon. At least we could say we hold to the books that the Jews held to, right? And and all the other, like the Orthodox Church, are adding books that the Jews clearly recognized they were there, but they never considered them to be inspired scripture. Mm. All right, very good. At a particular point in time, as to what was canonical and what was not, that happened in church history. Well, I'm confused. I'm confused. Then I, I was always I was under the impression that God gave us the canon, and the church recognized the canon. So not so much that the church gives us the canon, right? Well, but that recognition. Maybe there's a, a problem here with the words that we're using. Uh, Doctor Costa, am I correct there? <laughs> uh, and what was that question again? Can you just yeah? Feel free if you think I said something that was off. I I have well, no qualms about being corrected. But what I said no. was. Oh, okay. I, what I was, what I said was that I was always under the impression that God gave us the canon and the church recognized it. Yes. Yes. And, okay. and that's, that is the, what we see with the old Testament text as well, that okay. you, you don't hear about, I mean, a lot of folks will say, well, in 90 AD at the council of Damnia, the, the, the rabbinic authorities came together and they determined the text of scripture. Actually, no, they didn't. What they did was in light of the destruction of the temple in AD 70, Judaism was in crisis. Uh, how do we survive as a people without the temple, without Jerusalem? And so what the what the rabbinic authorities basically did was they they reaffirmed and codified Judaism. And part of that was to affirm the scriptures, what we believe are the scriptures. Like Athanasius, and you made this point as well, and it's well taken. Athanasius didn't say, you know what, I'm going to create a canon in 367 
and I'm going to put it into my 39th Festal Easter letter. What he was doing was simply reiterating what the church had already held to. Sure. And, and so and so I think you're absolutely right. The scriptures are 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 a divine artifact given to the church by God himself. Mm -hmm. Uh not something that the church creates. So I think your question was was very legitimate. Okay. All right. Thank you. Sure. Okay. So uh Athanasius the Great, I'll go with your language, recognizes 27 books mm. of the New Testament. And they're first codified as a coherent whole in 367. Oh, all right, right there. So, there okay. you go. There we go. There wait, we go. Wait, wait. The Protestant in me began, so I was like, it felt like a yeah. mosquito bit me. I was like, oh, wait, that's, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> let's stop yeah. right there. Why don't yeah, you why don't yeah. you respond to that? Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny that uh, he doesn't mention the fact there that Athanasius in the same festal letter uh, excludes the Apocrypha. And okay. he even says, uh, if I can quote him here, I got his festal letter here. Um, okay. he, he actually says, uh, for the greater exactness, I add this also writing of necessity that there are other books beside these not included in the canon. And he goes on to mention the Apocryphal books. So Origen, Athanasius, Jerome, uh, even Pope Gregory the Great rejected the apocryphal books. It's interesting when you think about it, uh, Eli, that the more a church father knows Hebrew, like Jerome, Melito of Sardis in 180 AD, Origen knew Hebrew as well. The more they know Hebrew, the prone they are to reject the apocrypha. Isn't sure. that interesting? Whereas mm -hmm. those who didn't know Hebrew simply says, ah, don't trust the Jews. They killed Christ. So we're going to go with, uh, with this. A tradition that the church held to. But look at what I want you to listen very carefully to what Athanasius says in that same letter. Listen to this. These, the scriptures, are fountains of salvation, that they who thirst may be satisfied with the living words they contain. Now listen to this. In these alone mm. is proclaimed the doctrine of God. That sounds like sola scriptura. Sure. In these alone is proclaimed the doctrine of godliness. Let no man add to these, neither let him take aught from these. For concerning these, the Lord put to shame the Sadducees and said, you do err not knowing the scriptures. And he reproved the Jews saying, search the scriptures for these testify me. And then Ambrose, the great teacher of Augustine said this, how can we use those things which we do not find in the Holy Scriptures? These mm. guys sound really Protestant to me. A and so, uh, Athanasius was not codifying the canon. He was simply reiterating what the church had already held to. Sure. Now, Dr. Costa, okay. Can I just okay. make one, one provisional? Go, go, go for it. Origen said this before Athanasius. Origen was already listing the, the canon of the scriptures about, about uh, uh, before Athanasius. Uh, he, was, he was, of course, alive long before Athanasius. But Origen himself creates a similar list, which shows that in his day, the canon was pretty well understood. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. sorry. That's okay. That's okay. Thank you for that. Um, my, my question is, um, if we quote Athanasius in a way that makes him look pretty sola scriptura-ish, it's not a, not a knockdown argument, but definitely no. um, a piece of evidence that can combat the accusation that sola scriptura is, is purely a reformation, a reformational innovation. Right. Right. It's a, it's a piece of a data piece that I think we should, we should consider and use as kind of a cumulative case as We look back mm -hmm. at the fathers, but um, what is it in the fathers that Catholics and Orthodox appeal to 
that do give the impression that there's this tradition that is equal with scripture and it provides kind of a fuller picture. Cause I, I, I would imagine they're not literally just pulling it out of nowhere. We can grab right. instances that sound sola scripture ish, but who do they appeal to other than Irenaeus, right. for example? Yeah. Right. What, what they're appealing to is this, the, the, uh, Irenaeus makes reference to the, the regula fide, uh, the rule of faith, uh, the, uh, in Greek, it's the Greek word canon the collection. But the rule of faith is the body of Christian faith, the way Jude uses it. Jude said, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So what they do is they take this language of regu uh, regula fide, the rule of faith, and what they do is they infuse it with this idea that the rule of faith is tradition. Mm -hmm. But it's not. It's the body of Christian belief. And it's not just Athanasius. I mean, you know, Basil the Great, for example, in his in his letters, he he says this. Let me just quickly quote this. He says, sure. therefore, let God inspired scripture decide between us on whichever side be found doctrines in harmony with the word of God in favor of that side will be cast the vote of truth. Notice how uh, Basil says, look, let the God inspired scriptures decide between us and whichever mm -hmm. side the doctrines we hold to are in harmony with God's word. Let the vote of truth be cast in that direction. So again, there's Basil the Great. Augustine said something very similar to this as well. Even Clement, uh, if you look at Clement of Rome at that early stage, the Holy Spirit has spoken through the scriptures. He says, it's God speaking to us. So I think we need to be very careful the way we treat the fathers, not just Roman Catholics, not just Orthodox, but Protestants as well, because they did hold to some views that we would not agree with, but then they held to views sure. that Rome would not agree with. Sure. Uh, so... Yeah. Okay. And who's to decide scripture? That needs to be our standard. It's, that's what they said. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay. Let's continue on. Um, we are so far 22 minutes into the interview. Why don't we try to hit the 30 mark sure. and then we'll leave the second half for part sure. two. Does that sound okay? Sounds great. All right. Now, 367, are you referring to Athanasius' festal letter? Yes. Okay, so wouldn't it be the case, though, that the books that he's listed there are recognized as canonical prior to his listing them, right? I mean, it wasn't as though Athanasius was giving a declaration as these are the official books. I mean, these were already accepted by the church. It's in my understanding, of course, that these were accepted as canonical. It's just later on you have them kind of placed together under one cover and kind of, quote, officially like these are the ones. But I mean... I well, it wasn't was, even official then because okay. if you look at the Old Testament, uh, the festal letter, as you well know, since you've referenced it, the festal mm -hmm. letter didn't include certain uh, books from the Old Testament like Esther that we include today. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. Um, so, so your the Eastern Orthodox position, if I can understand you correctly, is that the church gave us the canon. Okay, um, that would be your position, right? Oh. Yes, that a holy okay. tradition gave us the word of God and that the church is the ground and the pillar of truth. So the mm -hmm. Holy Spirit working through the church, through apostolic succession, gives us that which is true. And so we recognize the canon as being true. And I'm making the qualification that the canon uh, for... Uh, the Orthodox is different than the canon for a Protestant Bible, 
Mm -hmm. uh, of course, Luther included the longer canon. Well, why don't you why don't you take a moment? Uh, can can we stop there? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, again, he's he's being very quick with those words. Uh, Luther did not accept the Apocrypha, but he right. did include it in the Bible uh, for instruction and devotion. So it's like, for example, uh, we have a reference Bible and we have some commentary in there or, or we have some devotion from Oswald Chambers or Charles Spurgeon, right. something of that nature. Um, so Luther clearly said, look, we're not going to just ditch these books. They're helpful, but they're not scripture. And the and, and the Church of England did the same with the 39 Articles of Faith. They they came to the same conclusion. And, and if and you may not know this, this may upset our King James only friends, but uh, the original King James Version had the Apocrypha in it. That's right. It was right there. It was in between the Old and New Testament. Uh, and that's not because the the um, the Anglican uh, translators believe they were scripture. They included them because they were just held to be devotional works, but they're not inspired. And so, again, he makes it sound like Luther also accepted these books, but not as canonical. Um, so anyway, I, I think I think he was a little fast and loose with his words there. OK. All right. That's why it's important to know some of the exactly. historical issues. Right. OK. Very exactly. Good. Why don't, why don't you take a, a moment to kind of um, mention some of the books that are included in the Eastern Orthodox canon that are not included in the Protestant canon? I think that'd be useful for people who aren't aware of these issues. Well, you can just look at the index. I mean, there are books like Tobit. Uh, there are books like The Wisdom of Sirach. Uh, there, 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 there are all kinds of uh, books that are there. There are 46 okay. books as opposed to uh, 39 books in mm -hmm. the Orthodox canon, and there are parts yeah. of books as well that are included. You have Maccabees, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabees. So okay. there are many books that are included in the Old Testament canon. They're part of the Septuagint, and they're referenced in the New Testament, sometimes indirectly, but nonetheless uh, they're referenced, and uh, but the mm. biggest part of this. Let's is stop the there. Let's stop there. Yeah. To it. Yeah. Mm. He says they're referenced. Now, again, what does he mean by reference? They're never quoted. I mean, you don't find quotes from Maccabees or Judith or Tobit uh, or Wisdom of Solomon or Ecclesi or uh, any of those books. Um, but what is interesting is that in the Epistle of Jude, Jude makes reference to the Book of Enoch in Jude 14. Uh, the Lord comes with with ten thousands of His saints in Jude fourteen. Okay. Why isn't that in the Orthodox canon? But it is in the in the in the Ethiopian Orthodox canon. Why not in the, Orth the Greek Orthodox canon? Jude Jude is quoting a pseudepigraphic work there. He also quotes uh, what is believed to be the Assumption of Moses, where the Archangel Michael has a dispute with the devil, and he says, "The Lord rebuke you." Why isn't the Assumption of Moses in the canon of the Orthodox Church? Sure. And, and and the reason it's not in there, and that's why Jude was a bit of a difficult book to accept, because they were wondering, why is he quoting these, these sources? Well, Jude never quotes them as scripture. He never says, as it is written, or right. the scripture says. He doesn't use the formulaic uh, uh, patterns that we find. Um, and the only place where we have allusions to the, the Apocrypha, in Hebrews 11, it talks about uh, people being tortured because of their faith in the resurrection. And I think rightfully so and the king james translators actually referenced second maccabees chapter seven there uh while there are allusions to it those texts are never quoted by our lord and the apostles as scripture mm. not even once 
I mean, Paul quotes Greek philosophers in Acts 17, Epimenides and Aratus of Soli. We don't jump to the conclusion that the works of Epimenides are not canonical. Or when Paul quotes the, the Cretan poet, that Cre all Cretans are liars. We don't go and, and have his book included in our canon. So, so I think we need to be very careful here. Again, I think Hank's not being very careful with his words. Uh, those books are never quoted as scripture in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Allusion, alluded to, yeah, Jesus kept Hanukkah. Hanukkah is mentioned in the book of Maccabees, not in the right. Old Testament, but in the book of Maccabees. Yeah. Now, to throw a bone to Eastern Orthodox listeners, um, admittedly, uh, Hank admits, and we know this, that he is not an authority in the Orthodox Church. So as you're listening to, you know, an Eastern Orthodox person might be listening to this video. They're thinking, well, I would have said this. Well, great. Uh, we're responding to what Hank is saying. And so I think it's still uh, useful to bring out some of these uh, issues. And that's why I think it's important to encourage um, ongoing conversation, especially with your Roman Catholic friends, Eastern Orthodox friends, um, become aware of these issues and be able to engage in meaningful discussion with them. And that's what evangelism is about. That's what apologetics is about. And so I think it's very, very important to be able to do that. Um, well, Dr. Costa, I'm actually going to stop here um, okay. and we will uh, leave the rest for... Um, uh, a, a part two. So let me just sure. X out of this and let's see in the chat. I know a lot of people are watching the presidential debate, so, <laughs> um, so it's okay. We don't have a lot of questions this time around, but that's okay. Um, let's see if I can pick some from the listeners, maybe a comment to mention, uh, to talk about a little bit. Let's see here. Uh, let's see. Some people saying this is more exciting than the presidential debate. So. <laughs> uh, don't don't tell President Trump that. That's right. That's right. Let's see here. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Someone asked the question uh, with regards to the Coptic and the Ethiopian churches that you mentioned. Are, are some of those churches still around today? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the Coptic church is the national church of of egypt in terms of christendom uh, okay. they're around and as the ethiopian church absolutely all these churches are still in existence mm. uh, now someone makes a, a comment here uh there is only one church the bride of the messiah um it, i what i think is presupposed in this is perhaps a concept of say the distinction between the visible church and the universal church why don't you explain right. the distinction between the visible church and the universal church yeah, this is or the invisible this is the, church. Sorry. Yeah, this is the distinction that that Augustine made back in the in the in the fourth and fifth century. the The idea of the visible church is is the local church, the 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 people that you see gathering together and worshiping, and 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 the invisible churches or the mystical churches, it's sometimes called, is the church that is known to God, His elect, His people. The Lord knows mm -hmm. those that are His, and so the universal church are all regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They are the true bride of, of Christ. The true bride of the messiah uh in the local church you have both believers and unbelievers you have professing believers and you have genuine believers you got sheep and goats you got wheat and tares uh in the local church and that's why people come and go and that's why there's apostasy in the local church and so forth so uh when god looks at his church he doesn't see denominations when he looks at his church he sees his redeemed people from every nation every tongue every every tribe and so forth so that's basically the difference between what we call the visible church and the invisible church mm. uh, marcus makes a comment here uh, apostolic tradition was in, an invented concept do you would you agree with that statement yeah i i think that is true that uh again Irenaeus is the first to use 
the word apostolic tradition. And that's that's when he talks about the 50-year-old Jesus. And, and that's when, again, if you start with that as your first example of apostolic tradition, and claim he claims he got that from the apostles, sure. uh, then we know we're, we're on shaky ground. So I think it is an invented concept. I think it's an invented concept, much like Judaism. When Judaism says we have two Torahs, we have the written Torah and we have the oral Torah. The oral Torah is the Mishnah, the Talmud, the Gemara, all the rabbinic writings. And there's only one reason why you would appeal to some type of a, a tradition that is outside of the Bible, and that is to, main, to maintain authority. Mm, and, that was my so, next, literally my next question. Yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah. Think- it, it, yeah. So that way you see the Pharisees could say, you know, we, we, we are descended from Moses. We have the authority that Moses gave to Joshua and so forth. And, and that's exactly the example of apostolic succession is we have this authority that has been passed down through the apostles. But the problem is a lot of what they call apostolic tradition is clearly in violation of Holy Scripture, and therefore it can't come from the apostles. All right, very good. Uh, someone makes a comment here. We cannot deny the pedigree of the Catholic Church. How would you respond to that? <laughs> uh, uh, what It depends what they mean by the pedigree. I mean, uh, are they talking about the 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 influence of the of the of the Roman Catholic Church. The one issue I have is we we always give this title the Catholic Church to Rome, and, mm-hmm. and I've been trying to tell my students for many 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 years. Uh, the Catholic Church is the Church of Christ. The, the Christ Church is Catholic. It is universal. It is global. That's all the word Catholic means. In fact, the Greek or, the Orthodox Church claims they're the Catholic Church. Right? Remember the Creed says, "I believe in one holy Catholic Apostolic Church." That's in the in the Apostles' Creed, it's, it's contained within the Nicene Creed, I believe. And so the Catholic Church is the universal Church of Christ. Now, mm-hmm. the pedigree of the Roman Catholic Church, are there good things the Roman Catholic Church has done? Yes, I, I think that their stand for life is admirable. I think their stand for the unborn uh, is, is to be commended and so forth. But when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, that's where Rome uh, um, basically gets off the bus. And okay. so that's where we need to make our distinction clear. All right. Uh, Kyperian Berean asks, um, not really related, but is Dr. Costa a Reformed Baptist? Hello from a Reformed <laughs> Baptist. <laughs> yes, I'm actually more of, I'm, I'm actually a re-Reformed Baptist. No, I am a Reformed Baptist uh, in, in, in good standing and, and proud to be one. Okay, very good, very good. Um, there's a question here. What is the mechanism? I think it's a good question. What is the mechanism by which you can know which scriptures are inspired without assuming the scriptures that you now that you have now are inspired? If that question makes sense. Yeah, I think that if if something is from God, it, it necessarily will be true in, in its claims. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a subjective. You know, the Mormons talk about a burning in the bosom. Uh, we're talking about something that can be objectively, uh, verified, uh, historically, I think prophecies, the prophecies of the Bible have shown their objective truth. The fact that they cohere with archeological discoveries and so forth. There's also a subjective element. Uh, and, and, and when we read the word of God, there is a tug, if you will, there's a conviction that, that, that is had on you. That, that you you have this internal witness of the Holy Spirit, as Augustine called it. Um, when I read the apocryphal texts, to be quite honest with you, um, they're filled with historical errors. Uh, the book of Judith calls Nebuchadnezzar the king of Assyria when he was actually the king of Babylon. Um, and, and even these other books will claim that they are not inspired. They're not written by prophets and so forth. So mm-hmm. I think a number of factors, prophecy, uh truth statements historical accuracy 
the fact that the Bible is is very open about its itself, its history. It, it puts out its dirty laundry for everybody to see. The writers never claimed to be uh, sinless people. They claimed they were they were uh, they were a rebellious people that they sinned against God. Their ancestors sinned against God. There's a there's a ring of truth about it, and also the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We can't keep the Holy Spirit out of this. The Bible has been read by many uh, uh, scholars throughout the years, many apostates, many heretics, many liberals. But unless the Holy Spirit regenerates you, it will just be words on a page. And so there's so, a so, sense in which, yeah, God is sovereign. So the mechanism mm -hmm. would be miracles, the uh, the witness of the Holy Spirit, the historical accuracy. Yes. All these things would be the mechanism. These things yes. act as as things that we can apprehend, understand, and sure. have a justification sure. for believing certain books to be the inspired word of God. Sure, sure. And, and there is a, again, there is, there is to a certain extent a subjective element where there sure. is a sense of authority and, and it changes you. The words have a, a, an impact on you. They, they, they stir your heart and they convict your, 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 they convict you of your sin. And, and so, this is something I think it, it's a cumulative case, really. Sure. When we, it's not just one particular thing, right? And those uh, those who watch my show often know that we focus a lot on presuppositional apologetics. Uh, some people might be um, happy to know that uh, Greg Bonson and Van Til often um, also related the demonstration of the truth of the Bible through a, a transcendental argument. So one of the ways you can know the Bible's true is transcendentally reject the worldview that it put, puts forth, and you couldn't have a foundation for anything. And so if you remember those three important aspects of every world, do you have metaphysics or theory of reality, epistemology, our theory of knowledge, our ethics, our theory of how we should live our lives, mm -hmm. this coherent picture that is presented to us in scripture, if rejected, you'd have a foundation for nothing at all. So you could actually offer a sort of philosophical transcendental argument along with all of these other aspects that uh, Dr. Costa um, added to the mix there that can give us a justification for knowing that the Bible is in fact the word of God. All right, let's uh, take a couple more questions here. Uh, Benjamin asks, what is, oh, that's a question. Sorry, I already put that up there. Um, are the apocryphal books of the Roman Catholics the same as the Eastern Orthodox Church? Uh, yes, they are the same, but the, the Orthodox Church adds more. So the Roman Catholic Church has first and second Maccabees. The mm -hmm. uh, Orthodox adds third and fourth Maccabees. So there's two other books. Uh, and they also add the 151st Psalm. They also add the prayer of Manasseh. So the Orthodox canon is uh, slightly larger than the Roman Catholic canon. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, someone said, I know he's reformed, but is he a Baptist? <laughs> <laughs> You're a Baptist, right? Yes. There we go. Just yes, like I, Baptist, I'm, a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a cradle Baptist. Yeah. I'm a follower That's of right. John the Baptist. No. Amen. That's yeah. right. That's and, I, right. And, and I teach at a Baptist center, a reformed Baptist seminary. Yes. Okay. And this comment's a, a nice one here. Uh, I don't have a question, but I'll say I rather enjoy when you have Dr. Costa on good, Costa on good stuff. I, I do you. too. I've been very, very helpful. Um, all right. I think, I think, uh, that may be the last, the early church, blah, 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 blah. I think that's it. Okay. Dr. Costa must feel lonely there in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Are you are you are you lonely, Doctor Costa? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. I'm I'm surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So I'm amen, 
Amen. Well, um, for, for those of you guys, I, I really encourage you guys share this video. I think there's so much important stuff here going on uh, that can equip you uh, within the apologetics context to interact with your Roman Catholic friends, with your Eastern Orthodox friends, and uh, continue that open line of communication with gentleness and respect as First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 teaches us. Dr. Costa, I'm looking forward to having you on for part two, where we will listen to right. the rest of this discussion right. um, and interact with some of the important issues uh, concerning justification sure. by faith alone. And if so I can just mention another resource for sure. your here, sure. your viewers. Uh, there's a great book. I don't know if you've seen this before. Uh, Three yes. Views uh, in Eastern Orthodoxy and Evangelicalism. It's a great book. It's a book that I, I assigned to my students, and we did a course on Orthodox Church. And uh, Michael Horner is the Reformed uh, writer that responds to the Orthodox position. So this is a great book published by Zondervan, and the Ford is by J.I. Packer. So mm. it's really a great book, and uh, it's worth the read. It will really help you to expand your knowledge of orthodoxy in comparison to evangelicalism. Awesome. And at the end of our next our next video, too, I'd like to go through a couple of uh, maybe good resources for people on Sola Scriptura, Justification yes. by Faith Alone. We could talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. uh, I think that was my last question. Well, well, Dr. Costa, thank you so much. I really do appreciate your time. And uh, we're looking forward to having you back on. And uh, for those of you guys who are listening, please share this content and stay tuned. Hit the notification bell um, uh, to know when new episodes are coming up. Hopefully, I'll have uh, some other exciting guests uh, coming on talking about issues related to theology, um, apologetics, and things like that. Maybe we'll do something on the cults or something. But uh, that's it for today. Thank you so much. And um, hope you guys are enjoying one of the debates, that are, <laughs> the presidential debates, or maybe an apologetics debate. Hopefully, you're enjoying something. That's all for today. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.